0: And there's a very bloody good reason for this, I tell you what. Because I'll tell you, look, i I got to level with you here. Revered listener, I've got to level with you here, mate. I've got I to get some off my chest. I'm a little bit worried. I'm a bit worried that this podcast is losing its way. I'm a little bit worried. Because, you know, in the good old days, we used to chat about stuff like, you know, the Korean axe murder incident, the Great Emu War, and, you know, the... The time that one bloke started stapling goat testicles to people. And, you know, these days, how it is. Back in the good old days of talking about that. These days, you know, talking about all this highbrow stuff, bloody, you know, history of clocks, pandering to popular culture with Hamilton, mate. We've lost our way. We've lost our way. Half-hour's history has lost its way. So, today, we are going back. To some good old-fashioned half-ass history, back to how it used to be, no worries at all. And the Munster Rebellion is the perfect way for us to do this. Uh, it was suggested as a topic by quite a few alert listeners: Rob Hanton, Grunhouts, uh, a couple of other people as well. Thanks to everyone who wrote in with this one. Um, and I want listeners to rest assured that uh, I'm not about to uh, sell out to big history. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm not about to turn half-ass history into, you know, another mainstream, lowest common denominator, bottom of the barrel non- nonsense podcast. No, mate, not at all. I've got, I've got this that I'd like to think, I'd like to think, I've got this little thing called integrity. And that's why today we'll be chatting about brutal and torturous executions, about forced polygamy and the whims of a, of a crazed, self-proclaimed prophet, um, about siege warfare and starvation. And of course, Plenty of blood and guts and horrible murder, don't you even worry about it, although I do have to confess there isn't even a scrap of naval naval history in this episode, not even one little bit. However, we do make up for it with a, a different proud tradition of half house history, people with extremely confusing names. So, there is a, a lot to get across. The Münster Rebellion is the story of a political and religious coup that tried to take over the city of Münster uh, in the western part of today, today's Germany. And it has all that stuff that I promised, and so much more. Uh, a Christian movement known as the Anabaptists seized control of the town, and it's safe to say that by and large, it only got worse from there. So, look, we are already back to our roots. We're already back to our roots. Strap yourselves in. Let's get underway with the story of the Münster Rebellion. We're going all the way back here, all the way back to the early 16th century here, during the Protestant Reformation that, of course, was tearing through Europe during the uh, the early, early 16th century there, the early 1500s. Plenty of different flavors of Christianity emerged from this period in history, uh, but today we're going to focus on the Anabaptists. Now, Anabaptism, which essentially just means re-baptism, uh, it holds that infant baptism doesn't count. You actually have to be a voluntary adult, according to the Anab- Anabaptists, for it to count, not a you know, little baby who's got no idea what's going on. I think there's more to it than that, to be honest. I was reading about it, but honestly, I don't, I don't really know. There was a whole bunch of stuff about, like, Charismatic manifestations and apostolic succession. I, my eyes just kind of glazed over. To be honest, I did not a lot of it. Went in anyway. These Anabaptists, right? They're going up. Um, they're going up against the Catholics, just like you know the Lutherans and the Calvinists and all the rest of them. And uh, however, one view, right, that distinguished the Anabaptists from many other flavors of Christianity, uh, in addition to uh, the the baptism nonsense as well, uh, was the belief in communal property and uh, the equality. On, on Earth between all you know, wealth, wealthy, poor, everything they're like that. Very uh, you know, very very advanced ideas politically speaking, um, and that was in addition to all the you know the pretty bog standard Protestant stuff about common folk having access to God and jeezy crazy and all and all the rest of it. So you know th- th- that was that, that that was their thing. That was their flavour. That variation there. But it won't surprise you to learn here that the Anabaptists and their communal property ideas were not too popular with people who, well, had, had a lot of property themselves, like kings and bishops and the like. So already, you know, as part of the Protestant Reformation, which had plenty of enemies as it was, you've got further people distancing themselves uh, further from um, from Anabaptism because it's quite radical, you know, ideas there. Um people in power as a result of you know this this radical ideas that the the radical ideas the Anabaptists had, these people in power they came after them pretty hard people in power um, uh, you know during things like the German peasants war uh, and uh, they weren't doing this they weren't necessarily doing super well generally speaking the Anabaptists. And this is where Munster comes in, uh, as at the time it was known as a pretty tolerant city when it comes to religion, or no, I should be more specific, really. Rather, when it comes to Christianity, because if you're not a fan of old JC, you can get buggered. That's par for the course there, though. Anyway, Munster uh, in the 1530s, it is, uh, it's a, it's a release, it's a reasonably uh, religiously tolerant city, right? Its prince, its prince bishop is a at least nominally a Catholic, but probably was pretty tolerant of um, of Protestant ideals. It's run by Lutherans um, and is generally pretty tolerant of all the different uh, Christian denominations. So no worries there, it's, it, it's looking pretty good. But this tolerance ended up, right, precipitating the city's fall into the hands of the Anabaptists, as in the early 1530s, of course— it attracts a number of these Anabaptists who have these radical ideas, who are looking for somewhere that's a little more tolerant of, of religious differences. And uh, one such person is uh, is a bloke. Well, one of the three blokes in this story. In fact, one of the three people named Bernhardt, uh, there's three Bernhardts in this story, and, and this bloke is one of them. His name is Bernhardt right? Bernhard, Bernhard Rothmann, right? Bernard Bernard Rothman, if we're not going to do fancy German. So Rotman, um, he's an outspoken critic of Catholicism, and he goes about giving speeches, proselytizing, preaching, and writing pamphlets, which are published. These pamphlets are published by his mate, also named Bernhard. This is Bernhard number two, Bernhard Knipperdolling, absolutely dragging the Catholic Church. Now, uh, Rotman, he he started off as a Lutheran. Technically speaking, he was a Lutheran. Uh, But he becomes increasingly radicalized as time goes on, and his pamphlets actually end up, Full of what is essentially Anabaptist ideas about the redistribution of wealth and property and all the rest of it, right? And surprise, surprise, the poor peasantry in the in – the, and I don't mean poor as in unfortunate, I mean poor as in, like, not wealthy. The peasantry in the surrounding area here, they don't mind the idea a bit of a bit of the old bloody, you know, wealth distribution. And so more and more of them, they come to Münster to hear the ideas of people like Ottman. And um, as Münster fills up with people, you know, sympathetic to the Anabaptist cause – the lutherans are further and further outnumbered with each passing day let alone the bloody catholics mate they got no chance at all here so the leader of the city this bloke i was talking about prince bishop franz von waldeck right he's a bit worried here because he well look we're not we're not 100% sure it's a bit ambiguous exactly what his religious beliefs were to be honest but we know that he was at least i mean he relied on the he relied on the catholics for um for the legitimacy of his power as a prince bishop but he was at least a little bit tolerant or sympathetic uh, towards Lutherans, right? But he definitely didn't like the Anabaptists. We know that. He was none too pleased with his city being filled up with these you know, these peasants, and their very, very concerning ideas about equality. No good at all. So von Waldeck, he sought to bargain with Gottman and the Anabaptists. And in 1533, these, these two sort of factions have had a couple of spats. There's been a couple of attacks on um, on uh, von Waldeck's estate. Uh, von Waldeck has... Uh, retaliated with shows of power, stuff like, you know, confiscation of goods from merchants, all sorts of stuff like that. But eventually the two parties, with the mediation of a local noble, they sit down, they talk about things, and they made an agreement with each other. They decided to just chill out both of them a little bit. And uh, all, the, all the Anabaptists and von faldeck they come together, they sign this treaty, and they... Um uh, they agree basically. Everyone's got to. Everyone's got to just relax a little bit. It guarantees uh, some religious freedoms for for these Anabaptists and that sort of stuff. I guess technically speaking, they're not actually Anabaptists yet because they haven't been rebaptized. A lot of them, but you know, they're, they're rusted on believers all the same in, in this in this sort of creed anyway. So we just we'll just call them that for the sake of clarity and simplicity. There. Um, anyway. Again, agreement is made, treaty signed, no worries at all, and they all go back and, that, and that's fine. And of course, it doesn't end there, does it? Because that would be a very boring podcast. Like, oh, there was once a very minor religious issue in a small town in Germany, and, and that was that. Thank you for listening. Cue the outro music. No, it doesn't end there. The city is still f- uh, filled to the brim with these, uh, you know, rather rather radical, uh, you know, again, we're calling them Anabaptists, even though they're, they're, they're I guess they don't, they don't strictly fit the definition just yet. But uh, the city is filled with them. The city is filled with them. So by the time it, uh, when it comes to elect magistrates around the start of 1534, right, there are that many Anabaptists that they sweep the board, they replace all the Lutheran magistrates, and now they represent a very real threat to von Waldeck's power and influence over the city of Münster. The Anabaptists install that bloke that I was talking about before, Bernard II, Bernhard Knipperdolling. right, they install him as the mayor, and as news of this new Anabaptist, you know, heaven on earth spreads, it attracts even more people who are sympathetic to the cause. Because people, you know, people hear from far and wide this. Obviously, Münster was known for its religious tolerances, but now it's getting even more radical. It's getting even further out there, right? And what happens next? is Prince Bishop von waldeck he's out in his ass. He's expelled from Münster. He's, ex- he's not allowed in his own town there. And the city more or less comes under the complete control of the Anabaptists. And uh, as people pour into the city, right, more uh, high profile leaders, religious leaders emerge here. For example, um, <laughs> these two Dutch blokes who were, as it happens, both named Jan, uh, Jan Matthijs and Jan Bokkelsen. Now, Bokkelsen, uh, also known as Jan of Leiden, uh, he had turned up in Munster after hearing how sympathetic it was to Anabaptists like him, and then he invited the bloke who had converted him to Anabaptism. Uh, also called Jan, Jan Matthijs, right, a former baker. Now, Matthijs, he was uh, quickly accepted by the people of Münster as a prophet. He came in, he started, you know, preaching, proselytizing. He's having a bloody great time, right? A good bit of success, um, encouraging every. Well, actually, mm, encouraging is the wrong word. I was going to say, you know, he's encouraging all and sundry to convert to Anabaptism properly. But, it, I mean, it started out as encouragement and then became rather more uh, forceful encouragement until... People are essentially being made to be rebaptized, and that was just the start of it all because the Anabaptists seem, well, just like slightly bonkers, as most uh, religious zealots do. Apparently, they'd go through the city half naked, bloody singing and, and dancing, making great big fuss. Matthias, M- Matthias actually wanted to execute anyone who refused to convert. Um, <laughs> apparently, when he was preaching, he'd say stuff like this. <clears throat> Everywhere we are surrounded by dogs and sorcerers and whores and killers and the godless and all who love lies and commit them. So the bloke had no chill. I mean, it's a bit much, young old mate. Just settle down a bit, there. Hey, what do you, you know, what's what's all this about? He was persuaded in the end by people like Bernhard Knipperdolling to instead just, you know, boot the non-Anabaptists out of the city. After all, you know, they would just be replaced by more and more Anabaptists who were pouring into the city after hearing uh, hearing what's going on here. So. With their control over the city uh, firmly uncontested, right, uh, Matthias, uh, his Anabaptists, they begin, uh, you know, after they're going around converting everyone, whatever else I've like thousands of people were getting converted every day. Um, but they, they go around uh, and begin what was very del- uh, delightfully described as an orgy of iconoclasm. They're going around bloody smashing up religious icons like their bloody Constantine V, busting up cathedrals and monasteries and having a great time. But wait... There's more. Because the Anabaptists also made good on their ideas about equality and communal property. So they seized all the wealth and the possessions of the city's prosperous all the prosperous residents, and they shared it amongst everyone else, and declared they declared all property to be commonly owned. They also renamed Munster New Jerusalem and declared it to be where Jesus would return to earth. So so far, so good, I suppose. You know, a little theocratic communist utopia in 16th century Europe, no worries at all. I mean, in fairness, it actually did seem to work to begin with. Everyone who stuck around was fed and sheltered, and, you know, as long as you converted to Anabaptism, things weren't so bad for anyone, really. Again, you know, I guess no, it wasn't just the conversion, you also had to not mind having a slightly mental self proclaimed prophet being in charge. But uh, look, that's where we start. But, mate, as I promised, It only got worse from there. Because guess who turned back up after this had all happened? Guess who turned back up to stir up some trouble? Prince Bishop Franz von Waldeck is not about to lose his city to a bunch of filthy, bloody proto-communists. Thank you very much. So he rocks up and he tells the Anabaptists to give him back his city or he says, I'll bloody make you do it, mate. And they say, oh, yeah, is that right, big fella? Is that right? Let me ask you this. You and what army? And von Waldeck, you know, points behind him, and he says, this enormous army of soldiers and mercenaries that I've put together, this one right here behind me. And the Anabaptists go, oh, right, Um, okay, that one. Yeah, well, you know, fair enough. But yeah, no, nah, answer. still no, mate. Bloody stick it up your ass. So Van Valdeck, in the meantime, he had gone around and uh, not only had hired a bunch of mercenaries, but also had uh, pled with other local nobles and other leaders and whatever else uh, for aid, for troops and anything else like that. And they were more than happy to oblige and lent him plenty of soldiers because, of course, this is, this is a danger to their, the system of power that is keeping all of these wealthy lords and nobles and landowners on top of the pile. They can't let this, uh, what was effectively, again, as I've said, a, a, a sort of proto-communism. They can't let this ca- catch catch on. Otherwise, there's going to be all sorts of trouble for them. You know, they'll, they'll come, for their, uh, come for their cities next. So Van Valdek actually pulls together a, a sizable military, a sizable little force here. Uh, to, uh, to try to take the city back. However, of course, there are the city walls in the way, and uh, the end result of this whole interaction is that von Valdek actually besieged the city. And so all of a sudden, New Jerusalem might actually be in a little bit of trouble here. Uh, von Valdek's forces surrounded the city. Now Münster is, uh, is cut off from the outside world. And uh, communal or no, right, its supplies were not going to last forever, were they? But not to worry says uh, Jan Matthias, he says, listen here, everyone, right? This is all going to be over on Easter Sunday. Don't even worry about it. It's time for a bit of prophecy from me, your friendly neighbourhood Anabaptist prophet. Don't even worry about it. He's going around, right? He's saying that on Easter Sunday, Jesus himself would arrive in Munster, sorry, New (laughs) New Jerusalem, and God's judgment would punish those perfidious unbelievers outside the city walls. And he, Jan, as a prophet and a messiah, he would be there. To personally deliver this judgment to von Valdek and his her- her- uh, his heretical followers, so everyone thinks this is bloody great news. They, you know, they're, they're thinking, "Wow, oh, we're about to meet bloody cheesy crazy here." You know, getting haircuts, putting on the glad rags, sweeping off the front porch to make sure it's all looking nice for him when he when he arrives on Easter Sunday, just as their, uh, you know, their their prophet has foretold. But you'll never guess what happened. Well, you'll never guess what didn't happen, because on the fifth of April, fifteen thirty four, on Easter Sunday, right, Jesus Christ. Completely failed to materialize. Didn't turn up. I don't know if he what, like, slept through his alarm or what, but he just didn't turn up, hey, just just didn't rock up. So, you know, a bit of a setback for old Jan Matthijs there, you'd think, but not to be put off. He goes, look, don't worry about it. I've got a backup plan. It's uh, it's going to be fine. We're still going to get all the, all the stuff about God's judgment. That's still going ahead. We're still all guns blazing there. Don't even worry. All, all swords glinting on that. Don't even worry about that. He gathered a mighty force. Of soldiers from inside the city, ready to sally forth from outside the gates and go and take the fight to uh, Van Valck and the rest of the, uh, the the heretics outside. And as I say, gathered this mighty force of 12, 12 people, twelve. I mean, he got twelve people. It was not. He did his best. He, tr- he got 12 people. He got 12 people ready ready to go. And as I say, sallied forth out of the city to face down von Valdek and his army. And I was trying to think of like an entertaining way to describe what happened next here. But I really don't think I'm going to be able to top the ruthlessly concise summation that is given on Matthias' uh, <laughs> Wikipedia page. Here's what it says. <clears throat> he was killed, dismembered, and his head stuck on a pike later that evening. His genitals were nailed to the city door. (laughs) Imagine that. Imagine that 500 years later. That's your Wikipedia entry. That's your Wikipedia entry five centuries after your death. Poor old Jan Matthijs. Oh, my goodness me. Anyway, what a way to go. But the thing is right now... New Jerusalem, it's without its leader. And it is still set upon it all, you know, on all sides by this enemy. Still no sign of Jeezy Crazy. He still hasn't turned up. Whatever will they do? Well, don't worry. Because other Jan, Jan of Leiden, you remember him, um, he is here. To fill Matthias' shoes, no dramas at all, mate. Don't even worry about it. He's ready to uh, to step up and uh, and join the big... Li- well, actually, I say no drama. There actually was quite a fair bit of drama. There was actually quite a lot of drama, as it turned out, because new Jan, new, new Jan, right, he proved to be unbelievably even more mental than Jan Matthias, old Jan, right? Rather than stop it just being a mere prophet, this new Jan, Jan of Leiden, he eventually began to style himself as a king, uh the king of new jerusalem the king of of, of new zion as he was saying um uh, setting up a royal court dressing himself up in fine clothes crown and scepter the whole the whole shebang he had it all worked out right he claimed that he was the successor of the biblical king david <laughs> so now's when we start yeah you know, this is where we start getting into all the properly bonkers stuff here because gone was the communal property the equality all that hogwash right right out the window with that instead Jan hoarded and kept all the supplies for himself and his cronies as the rest of the city slowly started to starve thanks to the siege. He began to imprison or just straight-up execute anyone who spoke out against him. He absolutely did not tolerate dissidents who weren't keen on this new king. And remember, here's something to remember as well. This bloke isn't from Münster. This bloke's not even German. He's Dutch. And most of his supporters aren't from Münster either. Like None of them are locals. This is an extremist, extremist religious cult, more or less, that has taken over the city and is now executing and imprisoning people left, right and centre. It's a very bad bounce for the the Münster locals, for the people who've been living there all their lives, all of a sudden just taken over essentially by these extremists. Anyway, he also built up the defence of the city, organised, you know, armed guards, militias, patrols of the city walls, stuff like that. He even installed a couple of cannons up on church, on a few church steeples, which are pretty bloody inventive, I reckon. But you know what I'm going to say next, don't you? Of course you do. It only got weirder from here. I, I mean, worse probably also, but definitely weirder. At one point, as the siege continued, right, Jan decreed that every woman of age had to marry by law. Now, why was this? Because a woman named Hilla Faken, right, took it upon herself to end the siege by sneaking out of Münster one night to personally assassinate von Valdeck herself. Her plan was to uh, sneak into this bloke's bloody camp, this tent or whatever, seduce him, and then kill him. Now, unfortunately for Feiken, her plan didn't come together and she was caught by the besieging army and then, you know, very swiftly executed. Um, but uh, as a result of this, or potentially anyway, uh, this is this is what is at least theorised, Jan decided that he didn't want single women acting out on their own initiative like this, and so he sought in uh, to basically control uh, Münster's women by having them marry. The problem was that Münster had a lot more women in it than men, more than twice as many, about 5,500 to about 2,000, right? But what was Jan's solution to this? Polygamy. Compulsory polygamy, no less. Even for women who had already married someone, if their husband wasn't an Anabaptist, so, you know, if, if a woman had married a, a Protestant or a Catholic previously and this husband had, you know, fled or been forced out of Münster by the Anabaptists, she still had to remarry, right? So this announcement, it was, it is safe to say, not particularly popular with many people in the city. It was actually so unpopular with some that it prompted an attempt at a coup. In July 1534, a blacksmith named Heinrich Mollenhecker He led a group of dissidents against Jan in an attempt to seize control of Münster. And he was actually quite successful to begin with because they managed to storm uh, where where Jan was staying, right? Captured him, imprisoned him. Nice one there, Heinrich. Very good job indeed, mate. But after announcing this to the population at large, no one really took their side. I mean, Jan kind of had most of the people eating out of his, uh, eating out of his hand there. And uh, oops, yeah, didn't read the room too well there, Heinrich, old son. And as a result, all of these dissidents, all 47 of them were executed. They were, uh, they, they were all put to death for, their, uh, for their, uh, their, their little rebellion against the rebellion there, unfortunately, for, uh, for old Heinrich there. It's, uh, yeah, again, not a great bounce for him. And as a result, the uh, the decree on polygamy was put into full effect and every woman was forced into a marriage quickly thereafter. And Jan himself took 16 wives, 16 of them, including Bernhard Knipperdolling's daughter, although he did have one of his wives beheaded after she criticised his lavish lifestyle as the rest of the city starved. So uh, really not showing himself to be that good of an egg, this Jan this fellow. It looks like, I mean, they say, you know, Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't even think it took absolute power to corrupt Yun. absolutely, here. Anyway, meanwhile, what's going on the, on the outside of the city here? Outside the city, Von Valdek, he's not even close to giving up the siege. You know, all the ridiculous nonsense is going on inside Munster's walls. On the outside, Von Valdek, he is working to undo the city's defences night and day. He had his army drain them. Mo- well, actually, no, sorry, I shouldn't say that. He had his army force around 2,000 local farmers to drain the moat. They didn't do it themselves, but uh, he conscripted these local farmers uh, in order to divert and, uh, and drain away the water from the moat. And at one point, he also launched a clumsy attack with drunken mercenaries uh, at the city itself. But this was easily repelled by the Anabaptists, the highly militarized Anabaptists by this point. But undeterred, as we head into the winter of 1534, 1535, von Waldeck began to systematically render all of the exits from the city as useless as possible. He did this by walling off, uh, you know, uh, gates into and out of the city or digging trenches under the exits themselves, so you couldn't really use them. And of course, he also ensured that no new supplies reached the city at any point. And in in doing this, He was very, very successful because as we now move into 1535, it became clear that Munster was really feeling the pressure. After the winter finished in April, Jan allowed women, children and old men to evacuate from the city, keeping behind a a garrison of about 1,600 men to defend it. So a very clear sign that they were running out of food and these people just basically turned loose So you can't stay here. You don't have to go home. Well, you can't go home and you also can't stay here. Off you trot. I mean, not that you'd want to anyway. There's no food there. Um... And with hardly any food left to go around at these points, uh, at this point, it, it won't surprise you to learn what you know what sort of took place next, how the siege finally broke, because people are starving. These sixteen hundred blokes that have been, uh, you know, that have been sort of uh, forced to stay behind to defend the city from uh, from the besiegers here, a lot of them are very unhappy. And in May, a month or so after the evacuation of the women and the children, a carpenter whose name was also Heinrich, another Heinrich here, this bloke Heinrich Gresbeck, he tried to escape from Münster and uh, tried to sneak through the besieging army and uh, and hoping you know, hoping for a, a better fortune on the other side, maybe somewhere else uh, in the world. But he was caught. He was caught by von Valdeck's troops as he attempted to escape from Münster. And von Valdeck had been pretty unforgiving of anyone attempting to uh, to make their way away from the city. Uh, those who had been caught had been pretty ruthlessly executed. So now poor old Klesbeck, he's in a position where he quite literally had to bargain for his life here, which I'm happy to say... He did quite. He did very successfully. Uh, he offered to lead the army to a poorly guarded gate, a, a way in uh, to Munster without, you know, that may escape the notice of of the people guarding it. And as a result, on the twenty fifth of June, uh, after the necessary preparations had been made, Gresbeck lent von Waldeck's soldiers to this uh, to this gate, this poorly guarded gate uh, that was hidden away somewhere. And there, the soldiers finally gained entry to the city where they began a bloodthirsty campaign of retribution against, uh, against all the Anabaptists that had taken over the city. There was fighting in the streets, and hundreds of these poor, starved Anabaptists died at the, uh, at the hands of von and uh, and his army there. And uh, the the battle was a very one sided, it was a very bloody affair, but it was a very one sided affair as um, uh, ultimately, after the killing of hundreds, of course, Jan of Leiden finally surrendered the city and was captured, taken into custody by uh, by the uh, the Prince Bishop there. So <clears throat> it wasn't just him either, by the way, it was him and his two lieutenants, Bernhard Knipperdolling, who we've talked about a fair bit, and finally, at long last, you've been waiting for him, and he's finally made his appearance, Bernhard Krechting, our elusive third Bernhard. Uh, they were they were captured as well. As for Bernhard Rotman, uh the first Bernhard that we talked about, uh, he, it, it's thought that he was killed in the fighting. We, we're not one hundred percent sure of that, though. His body was never found, and so he may have escaped. So we we don't know one hundred percent what uh, what Rotman's ultimate fate was there. But he definitely fell off the face of history. Whether it was because of death or he just sort of you know went and made himself scarce after this after being involved in this whole in this uh, this whole affair, but. With the recapture of the city and with Jan of Leiden imprisoned, von Waldeck's victory was more or less complete. It had taken over a year, but he finally now had his city back, and the Münster Rebellion had been successfully crushed. However, he wasn't quite finished. Oh, no, no, no. He had something very nasty indeed planned for his treasonous captives. Jan of Leiden, Bernhard Knipperdolling and Bernhard Krechting, they were subject to a public execution and after van veldek had taken control of the city and uh, you know s- uh, removed all the scourge of the anabaptist uh, the anabaptist influence there, re-catholicized it in some situations as life returned to a semblance of normality for all the poor people from munster some of whom you know returned after uh, after being exiled there by the previous administration but uh once all of this had begun to happen, right, a, uh, again, a public execution was organised for Jan Bernhard, and Bernhard. And we're not talking about something swift and simple here. No, 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 no. We're not talking about something that is, you know, very, very very easy or, uh, or going to be over quickly. No. Van Valleck made sure that these blokes suffered horrifically. And so on the 22nd of January in 1536, an enormous crowd assembled in front of the Münster City Hall to catch the gruesome, torture and execution of these three rebels. Executioners used red-hot pincers to tear strips off of these three Anabaptists before finally stabbing them through the heart to once and for all kill them. But their suffering was not yet over. Van Valdeck had had three cages, made three very, very small little cages, right? Made, like gibbets basically, made especially for these three corpses, and these cages were then strung up on the top of a church tower, right, on the top of St. Lambert's Church. And the corpses remained there for 50 years before finally the cages were emptied of what little remained of the doomed Anabaptist. five decades after they were put to death. (coughs) The Munster Rebellion, it was a turning point for Anabaptism uh, as the movement faced widespread condemnation and persecution once the stories from within the city spread. Although it is possible that a lot of what you've heard today, you know, may have been exaggerated. Uh, we all know that the winners write the history books and it's possible that, uh, you know, the enemies of the Munster Rebellion wanted to make it seem more gruesome and bar- barbaric than it was. But uh, nonetheless, even in the face of this uh, this condemnation and widespread uh, mistrust and, and persecution, Anabaptism didn't die out. The movement never again managed to siege, seize such, you know, power or notoriety in the same way, but it still exists today. Because other Anabaptists, right, they rejected the violence and the extremism of the the Münster Anabaptists, and they went on to become known as the Mennonites. And then some centuries later, there was a schism within the Mennonites, which produced the Amish. So modern Anabaptism takes in the Mennonites, takes in a bunch of other movements as well, but it also takes in the Amish. And I'm pretty bloody glad that that's where Anabaptism landed, defined by things such as, you know, pacifism, hard work, a rejection of buttons, that sort of thing, rather than, you know, having your willy nailed to the city gates. (laughs) Finally, there is one other very interesting legacy from the Münster Rebellion that you can actually go and see in Münster to this very day. Because if you visit St. Lambert's Church on the spire Of this church in the centre of the old town, those three cages still hang there to this very day, almost 500 years later. The church tower was demolished and rebuilt in 1880, at which point, the cages, once it was rebuilt, they were dutifully replaced um, after being repaired a little bit. And then, in 1944, during the Second World War, when Allied bombs hit St. Lambert's Church, Jan's cage fell and smashed to the ground. Uh, another one of them fell inside, in uh, inside the, uh, the organ loft, uh, while the third, it hung from the tower by a thread. But sure enough, four years later, these cages were returned to their original pre-war positions, where they hang again to this very day, a very weird reminder of a gruesome but ultimately quite entertaining chapter in the history of the city of Münster. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Münster Rebellion. And I do very much hope you enjoyed a return to the roots of Half-House History Classic. It's back, my friends. It's back. Blood and guts and horrible murder. Long may it rain. Back with some naval history next week, I don't doubt. No, listen, if you've got an idea of what I want to be back with next week, please do get in touch. HalfHouseHistory.net. You can find uh, the contact form there. It's a great way to get in touch. Or you can join my Discord, bit.ly slash join Riley's Discord. Uh, And the server there, uh, there's a little discussion uh, and a a, a topic suggestion channel where you can uh, come and let me know what you reckon I I should do next. Or have a chat with other people about the episode. People were talking about... uh, the twist in last week's episode, little riddle there, and discussing whether they got the answer or not. So, if you want to come and uh, have a chat with some other like minded individuals, that's the place to do it. Also, on the website, of course, you'll find uh, links to the shop, uh, bigcartel at com. And uh, to the Patreon, where the Patreon uh, where, where people support me week in and week out. Thank you so very much to all the Patreon supporters who are uh, throwing cash my way hand over fist. I do very much appreciate it. And uh, if you want to join their exalted ranks, of course, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. You get access to all sorts of stuff, uh, uh, depending on your support level, everything from, you know, uncut episodes, scripts, uh, behind the scenes stuff, uh, early access, all sorts of things, all sorts of good stuff. Anyway um that is that for another episode please do get in touch let me know what you think if you've got uh, ideas for more topics i gotta have them need them gotta just gotta gotta mm, gotta create more content mate need need those content ideas uh but thanks very much for listening tell a friend and uh, i'll be back next week with more half history looking forward to having you then um i've got a question you posted on reddit now it's not we didn't talk a lot about the reformation but this was you know vaguely a reformation based episode and the <laughs> While browsing through some questions about the Reformation, I really couldn't pass this one up. It's so good. So this one comes to us from uh, Reddit historian Just a Basic Human, who asks, Why did Charles V have a diet of worms? Isn't that unhealthy?